0: Welcome to Raise the Line with Osmosis.org, seeking solutions with leading experts on how to increase healthcare capacity so people can get the care they need during the COVID 19 crisis and beyond.
1: Hi, I'm Shibulani, and today on Raise the Line, I'm happy to be joined by Dr. Larry Benz, who's the president and CEO of Confluent Health, which owns and operates over 230 physical therapy practices around the U.S. Dr. Benz is nationally recognized for his expertise in private practice physical therapy and occupational medicine. His current areas of interest include conducting research and in integrating empathy, compassion, and positive psychology interventions within physical therapy. I'm really excited to have him on because actually my mother is a physical therapist in Florida with her private practice, and my best friend from since seventh grade is a physical therapist at MUSC in Charleston, South Carolina. So I think Dr. Benz is our first physical therapist on the podcast, so welcome.
0: Well, thank you. It's great to be here. It's always good to be a first. <laughs>
1: So, can you tell us a bit more about your background and what led you to even get into a career in medicine, specifically physical therapy and occupational medicine?
0: Yeah, sure. I'm one of the oddballs in that when I was a young kid, I I knew I wanted to become a physical therapist. I was involved in sports and athletics and had my fair share of injuries. And I was exposed to kind of athletic trainers and physical therapists around middle school age, sixth grade probably. And I thought, man, that'd be a great profession to go in, keep me close to athletics, keep me close to caring for people, you know, decided uh, early on. So I stayed on that pathway the entire time uh, when I got to college at undergraduate, the education of physical therapists tended to migrate from bachelor's degrees to master's and then doctorate. And I was in that phase where it was a master's degree. So Uh, After finishing undergraduate and applying to different PT schools, I had some problems in the sense that I ran out of money, and so I went to the U.S. Army Baylor University Physical Therapy School, which involved graduating from school and then serving in the military, in my case, for about five years of active duty and many years in reservists, and the Army was a big sports medicine center for me, Um, so it was a tremendous experience. And I just loved all parts of being a physical therapist. But one of the things I noticed in my clinical practice was there were things that mattered other than my physical exam, you know, how patients uh, responded, your so-called bedside manner, if you will. And it occurred to me that we need to have some evidence and research that supports these non-clinical factors of clinical success, whether it be empathy, compassion, high-quality listening peak end effects, goal setting. How do these things really influence? And, and as it turns out, they have a tremendous influence. And, and so during my career, that kind of stayed with me. You know, like when I was active duty army, I, I'd be floored to see that if you just told patients, yeah, your x-rays were normal, all is good. A certain percentage of them were just miraculously sort of cured. There had been a study by Boeing that basically said if you were an injured worker, if they just called you within 72 hours after your injury and said, look, we care about you. We want you to know, we want you to get better and we want you to be back at work as fast as possible. There was a statistical difference between those who called and said just those very simple phrases and how somebody got better. So what are these sort of, non-clinical factors of clinical success that eventually led me to the University of Pennsylvania and their program called Masters of Applied Positive Psychology, where I extensively studied to see what kind of empirical evidence there was that suggested that emotional intelligence and these so-called soft skills, do they really make any difference? And if so, how do they? And so that's sort of my journey that uh, eventually culminated with Call to Care and the program
1: and the book that went with it. That's fascinating, and actually, we have a pretty solid relationship with Pan and Osmosis, and I had the opportunity to, to once have a dinner with Martin Seligman, who you know him well as the father of positive psychology. Can you tell us a bit more about that program before we dive into your book called To Care?
0: Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great question. So, Dr. Seligman started the program called Masters of Applied Positive Psychology. And he's obviously a co-founder of the whole movement of positive psychology, which basically it attempts to look at things and says, what went right? And how could we better reproduce it rather than what is wrong and have a negative side of it? And so he really founded it when he was the president of American Psychology Association. And this is one of his gems was to educate those who are in education fields, medicine, coaching, of all types to say, how could we integrate positive psychology research, just studies after studies after studies, how can we integrate it into their profession, and that's what really happened for me because you had all this research but nobody bothered to transport it or integrate it within healthcare and so that was the quest that I was on very early. And uh, that program is a master's degree program, Uh, takes about a year, results in a thesis, a capstone, if you will. And my capstone was called to care how to integrate those concepts within the field of physical therapy generally in Healthcare as well.
1: That's fantastic. So we're a very culture driven organization on osmosis. And our first of six core values is start with the heart. In fact, our vision is to create a more caring world by developing the most caring people which is why we train healthcare professionals. I would love to hear more about Call to Care. I haven't had a chance to read it yet, but I know it just came out on the shelves last month. Can you tell us a bit more about the book and any practical advice that you put in the book about how healthcare professionals can put the humanity back in healthcare as, as you described? Yeah,
0: no, it's a great question. I was interested in sort of three ways that rehumanizing could it help you. One, could, does it have any effect on the outcome of clinical care? Does it make patients better, faster? Does it add nothing to it? Uh, Secondly, does it have an effect on the provider? So, you know, you read a lot about burnout in the profession. Well, as it turns out, burnout in healthcare is abundant and almost proliferating at record-setting paces, and COVID has been no exception. Can it help you? Is there a true antidote to burnout? And lastly, can it make your organization better? Can you make money from it? At the heart, I'm a business owner, and does it help me differentiate my product? Does it give me a competitive advantage in the marketplace? As it turns out, on all three levels, you can. You can decrease burnout, give patients a better clinical outcome, and it helps your organization flourish. So that was the primary motivation. So the answers to all those things are absolutely yes. Um, What does empathy and compassion truly say? There's a lot of emphasis these days on compassion versus empathy, and sometimes empathy gets shortchanged. But the reality is these are multidimensional constructs, and you have to be intentional about them. They're muscles, if you will. And so you have to train them. You know, we as physical therapists oftentimes get trained in our hands-on care, our manual therapy and exercise. Those are relatively straightforward, but the cognitive skills, emotional intelligence, how you manage yourself and others, what truly does motivate you from a compassion standpoint, those are a little bit harder to train. They're harder to get deliberate feedback on, but they're as important, and in many cases, the research shows more important than your clinical skills.
1: Yeah, no, totally. And I mean, one reason I think we are so interested in that area is that one of the last things that maybe the machines or uh, AI will be able to take from us are genuine care. And so can you tell us a bit more about how do you select for that? How do you build that caring muscle? What are some of the strategies that you've incorporated yourself and, and also in the book from your studies of positive psychology?
0: Absolutely. So in the book, we describe about 12 to 14 of these so-called soft skills. We objectify them, if you will, and then give the underlying support and research for them. But at the end of the day, how do you train for them is the real, real important factor. So when it comes to the area of empathy, for example, what you find out is that empathy doesn't have one definition. It has four. And uh, it's a multidimensional construct. And so you have to train in it and you have to get folks to exercise those muscles. We did an interesting study with the Northern Arizona University where we trained physical therapists prior to going out on their last internships, clinicals, if you will. And, and said, here's what empathy is. Here's how you train for it. We compared that to a base group where we just tested them for empathy. And by the way, you, you, all the studies indicate that you start out in medical school with a lot of empathy. And by the time you graduate, you've had it drastically reduced. But how do you maintain it? And as it turns out, the group that we continued to provide for them some reminder of empathy, whether that reminder was a short snippet, a video a vignette, if you will, coupled with underlying base training and empathy, uh, outperformed everybody else. So you really do have to have uh, what we call in our company, a re-mind uh, about empathy because it'll slowly, it's like willpower. It'll you know slowly, if not exercise, it'll disintegrate. The other parts of empathy that are critical is that as healthcare providers, we rush to pro-social concern, we rush to want to do something and to action plan around helping. Well, that's only one aspect of empathy. So if you're grading somebody on empathy and you're only scoring them on pro-social concern, healthcare providers generally rate high. But the other sorts of empathy, perspective taking, literally taking the long walk around, seeing it from all angles, emotionally sharing, experience sharing with your patient, Healthcare providers don't necessarily do too well. Then there's the third aspect of it, which is the emotional side. So you got the cognitive side perspective taking, you have the affective, which is how can I emotionally share? What do I have in common with this particular individual? And then the last part of it is non judgment. How can I exhibit under an environment of non judgment? You know, judgment's the most addictive drug we have, but in the context of patient care, we have to recognize that somebody's truth is their truth, regardless of what my bias and where my brain is taking me. And, you know, who could think of a better time right now with all of the conversation about uh, racial justice, diversity, equity, and inclusion, to really start to embrace empathy, but to really understand it on all four of those levels. Because if you don't, you're really
1: going to shortchange it somewhere along the way. Those are some really fascinating examples. Thanks for being that specific. Now, it's one thing to read a book and have some really interesting insights and takeaways. It's another thing to change curricula. In your ideal world, how would somebody go from just taking a reading of the book and actually applying it? Is there a course? Are there some other strategies that can be incorporated? It's interesting. Many med schools now have added coursework
0: in Empathy lots of different models that have evolved. We've had our curriculum called Call to Care adopted by many PT schools around the country and a few medical schools as well. What we have found, what our research really shows, is that if you hold somebody accountable to empathy, they'll be empathetic. So one of the ways we really proliferate in our organization is we use a third party validated instrument called the Compassion in Relational Empathy Questionnaire. It was developed out of Scotland. It's got a database of like 15,000 practitioners. And it's a 10 question Likert scale about goal setting, about listening to patients, about having them say so in their care and very simple, very intuitive type questions. And it could be scored and graded. And we grade all of our therapists on empathy every month through this care questionnaire. And what you find is if they realize they're going to be held accountable to it, all of a sudden they listen a little better. All of a sudden they start to demonstrate a little bit more perspective taking. You know, they put more emphasis on a higher quality connection, mutuality, vitality, all of those kinds of things. Coupled with that, we do have to provide the underpinning. The attitude we've taken as an organization is we don't care which 250 of the physical therapy schools you trained at. When you come to our organization, we're going to give you underpinning in empathy, compassion, emotional intelligence, soft skills, because we don't feel like those are honed in traditional academic environments. So we think. It's our responsibility to help facilitate and make it a contagion within our own
1: organization. That's awesome. I would have to look at that instrument out of Scotland, you know, it reminds me of that quote, if you can't measure it, you can't manage it. How long have you had this instrument and used it as something you measure your staff on? And what are some like actual outcomes that you may be able to share on how patients have responded and how outcomes may or may not have changed? Yeah, so we've been using the
0: CARE survey since 2013. We also have developed and validated an additional instrument that we call patient loyalty, because we really believe patient loyalty is the next level of patient satisfaction. You could have a patient that's very satisfied, but do those satisfied patients truly recommend their friend, family member, or if they get an additional injury, will they come back and see you? So we have this report card that we give to physicians, to payers, and to employers by location, by therapist, complete transparency on this is their compassion relational empathy score. And this is their patient loyalty score. And it's all done essentially by a third party, because we really believe that it's made us a better organization. You know, we have 230 PT clinics, there's a lot of data I can look at the number one piece of data I look at every month is how many current patients are former patients, friends and family members. And we know we can get that number to about 30%. And that's a lag indicator of the lead indicator, which is training and empathy, compassion, having a culture built around that. So it's very, very important to our company. And as I said, I mean, look, I'm a capitalist. I love academia. I love being a physical therapist. I love empathy and compassion. But at the end of the day, we're an entrepreneurial organization and we want to definitely be successful. And part of that success is all, all the stuff that comes after you do all of these things. And part of that is Frankly, financial. The other quote that we say a lot in our company is not only about measuring it, but you get what we emphasize. You know, you really do. And so by emphasizing an environment where uh, patients are really going to come in and have an unbelievable experience that is objective as best you can leads to the success. So we really believe in it and emphasize it and uh, train for it, teach it, monitor it, reward it, re-engineer it, and all the things that go in a learning organization.
1: That's fantastic. And so going into Confluent Health, I mean, the scale that you guys have achieved is tremendous, over 230 physical therapy practices. Do you mind giving us a bit of backstory on on how you joined, what that ramp up was, how many therapists you employ, and then also how many patients you see every year?
0: Yeah, so I've been a physical therapist for well over 30 years. I was in the army. I was an army physical therapist where Ironically enough, it's actually a fantastic environment to be an entrepreneur because you have no money at risk, but yet, the more you do, the more they want you to do. So I kind of cut my teeth in the military. And as soon as I transitioned out, I went right away into private practice, which is very counterintuitive because I knew nothing about reimbursement and the healthcare system and Medicare and building patients and any of the kind of things. The good news about that is I didn't have any of the biases either. So it allowed us to propel a practice in that manner. And so over the years, we have really developed good clinical operating models around training and kind of a human capital talent management approach and allowed us to, to grow very rapidly. So I'm a co-founder of Confluent Health. All of our brands are partnerships with other private practice PTs that join our group or we partner with them in kind of a merger acquisition standpoint. And so that's allowed us to have great scale. So we're in about 14 states with 235 locations. Once COVID goes through the Paycheck Protection Program, we've got about another literally 100 clinics that are joining with us. We have an education company called Evidence in Motion because we believe education truly is the great equalizer. So all of these things around our customer service value proposition, call to care is really culminating in education company that trains PTs. So we're the only group I know that actually trains our competitors and we're happy to do so. We have orthopedic, sports medicine, manual therapy, neurology, women's health, occupational medicine, residencies, and fellowships. We're the largest provider of that in the U.S. And then a third leg of our stool is a company called Fit for Work. So Fit for Work provides on-site work injury management through athletic trainers, occupational therapists, and PTs around the country. We're in about 800 sites, lots of companies that have material handling, very heavy manufacturing, repetitive use injury jobs. We stage them with our PTs, OTs, and trainers. So it's a very, very uh, fun company, lots going on. Obviously, we we were impacted by COVID, as you would think, but we've been able to bounce back pretty well. And we think one of the reasons why we're able to bounce back is really our motivation around compassion and empathy. So it's been very, very helpful in that sense as well
1: that's tremendous uh, so and you mentioned how covid has slightly affected confluent health do you mind walking us through like the process of dealing with covid across 14 states across 230 locations how has covid affected everything from you know back in march when it started getting big in the us to today and then where do you see it going in the next year especially as it relates to your practices
0: it's very interesting we have clinics in seattle washington which some would argue is one of the ground zeros of, of where, where things in the US started to, to come into play. So we were faced with it very, very quickly. There was so much variance from state to state in how quickly things shut down and what were the measures taken. But what I can tell you is that eventually everybody adopted the similar patterns of uh, PPE, six feet distancing and everything else. Physical therapy was always deemed an essential service, but that didn't mean you had to attend. So our business went down to about 30 percent of its level by end of March and in early into April. Uh, since then, we bounced back and we're literally back to almost 100 percent, which is a real tribute to what we've had. But we developed a strategy that says, you know, we have to take care of our own first. We have to make sure our employees and their families are safe and secure. So we did that. We did that very thoughtfully and measurably. All of our therapists get tested every two weeks. I think we're the only organization in our profession that does that because it puts a level of accountability on it. You know, we have 3,500 employees and a lot of our therapists are young and they're in that demographic that's really, really raising high numbers of, of cases. We've only had 10 cases, which we're really incredibly proud of. So we took care of our employees first and then we did a branding and a messaging around confidently safe reliable and accessible. So we had to do some pivoting into telehealth. We had to do lots and lots of uh, dollars were spent on getting the sanitization, the other temperature checks and all the other things that you have to do in a clinic. And then we let everybody know virally through text messaging and videos and, and cartoons that we're open for business. And these are the precautions that we've taken. And then we, not surprisingly, cause we love data, we started surveying our patients. Did they feel safe? Did they feel confident? And they did. And then having a high sense of urgency around getting patients in the door. Now, having said all of this, we still have some, our most vulnerable patients oftentimes that need care, like our elderly, like those who have diabetes or breathing disorders, respiratory issues. They're still having a little bit harder time coming into therapy because they're scared. But what we've done is we've created a safe place for them. We've set hours aside to where there's very few folks in the clinic and allows them to come in and be very comfortable with that. Because of all that, it's allowed us to bounce back pretty aggressively. And we're very, very thankful to that. But what we're really concerned about is the impact of COVID and what it's had on our healthcare system. Healthcare disparity and educational disparity have never been greater. They're only going to get greater because of COVID. The second part of that is that patients are out of shape. We've had patients that have had the weight gain that you hear about or read about is very real. That has musculoskeletal impact, more aches and pains, sprains and strains. You have what I call the pandemic behind the pandemic, which is the opioid crisis has been renewed. It's just not talked about as much. But we have lots of chronic pain. There's 50 to 60 million Americans with chronic pain in the U.S. That's a particular specialty of ours. And COVID is accelerating that to maybe 65 to 70 million. So very, very concerning. And then the last piece of it, which is the most interesting piece, is recently there's been a lots of sports have started back again, whether it be professional, amateur, school. The injury rates are statistically higher than at any time ever. You've seen it in the NFL the early parts of the season, the number of pro athletes who have access to the best resources. But think of the non-pro athletes that don't have resources to the training and stuff where they were sheltered at home, and you literally are seeing some impact from that. In a post-COVID world, whenever that is, there'll be continued implications from COVID. You know, uh, my first patients that I treated – when I was a young therapist were post polio patients. Think about that, a virus that impacted many, many moons ago. We're going to be seeing post COVID patients for a long time. There's definitely latent effects on the respiratory system. We're definitely seeing whether it's the metabolic changes that are causing more obesity or more injuries. The effects of COVID on the healthcare side of things is not going to go anytime soon.
1: That's fascinating. And I definitely heard the term pandemic behind the pandemic in regards to opioids, as well as People not utilizing care as much, uh, not doing the preventative screenings or not going to the ER because they're worried and maybe missing heart attacks and and not doing mammographies, for example. So I've definitely heard about that, but I didn't know about the uh, athlete injury levels going up. So that's fascinating. You know, PT has always been, I think, a very technological field, uh, just given the nature of the work. As I mentioned, my mother is a physical therapist. She specializes in urinary incontinence, runs her own practice in uh, in Florida. She's published a couple of books on post-prostatectomy, how do you regain continence? And seeing her practice go through the COVID wave in Florida has been very interesting. She does a lot of tele- PT at this point and biofeedback and things like that. So I'm curious, what is your view on telePT or other technologies that are impacting the practice of physical therapy?
0: Yeah. So I'll, I'll compare and contrast it a couple different ways. So one of the things that we've had in this country is an explosion in behavioral health uh, for all the right reasons. People are higher levels of anxiety and depression and behavior health's adaptation and ability in telehealth is amazing. So we look at telehealth as a delivery system, just like we use virtual reality. We look at it as a delivery system. We had an amazing influx in the number of telehealth visits early in COVID that has now dwindled quite a bit. We're still doing some, but we're using it to screen patients, to monitor patients, but not to replace hands-on clinical skills. You mentioned uh, pelvic health and the techniques and the interventions that you have, just some of them cannot physically be done over telehealth but biofeedback and some of these things that are a little bit more behavioral health oriented uh, certainly can be. So we're very, very excited about it. We also like virtualizing other practitioners. So for example, in our chronic pain program, we may have a patient and then we bring in through telehealth, a behavioral health specialist, a nurse psychologist, for example, or a neurosurgeon or an orthopedic surgeon. So you're seeing that used in a multitude of ways. We also believe that patients do want to be able to communicate with their provider. They want access. They don't like waiting room times. So you're seeing more virtual waiting rooms that we think that's going to be, you know, you're going to be sitting in your car waiting for your appointments a lot more in healthcare, I think, than ever. Uh, People don't want to be in waiting rooms. So I think those changes are going to be helpful. I think we're going to be screening using temperature and probably PPE for a long time. I think it's very effective, especially during flu season when you're going to, Get a resurgence at least if nothing else the common flu so i think a lot of those changes are going to be around for a long time but telehealth is a, definitely a game changer for many in healthcare it has an impact in pt but not like it's having in behavioral health
1: yeah those are definitely astute observations so i know we're coming up in time but the, the last two questions i had are, are one given that so many of our audience at osmosis are current and future healthcare professionals people who are maybe even considering careers in the health professions, what advice would you give to them about meeting the challenges of the COVID pandemic and beyond? Given the
0: data on the numbers that will be accessing healthcare post-COVID, I would tell them that the world is their oyster right now. And so healthcare heroes is a very real phenomenon. Um, I think you've seen great highlighting of the impact of healthcare, whether it be nursing or any, any type of caregiver, physicians and everything that were working in the ICUs, and you saw very heartwarming stories about, you know, being able to FaceTime a patient real time that a nurse was doing it with their families because they weren't able to visit them during COVID times. And so I think for very, very good reason, be excited about healthcare. Lots of physicians, whether it's an ancillary provider any type of healthcare giver is going to be a good occupation to go in for sure. So very, very excited. And I hope we can continue to to emphasize it as a career pathway for our young folks, because there had been this phenomenon prior to COVID, particularly in the physician data that showed they were not recommending the career to their loved ones, including their kids. So what I'm hoping COVID has done is say, look, you know, there's definitely some regulatory issues. There's definitely some challenges, but, it's still a great field. If you care about people, you love being in the healthcare world.
1: I'm sure this is the case in, in PT schools as well and across the health professions, but we had the, the president of the AAMC for medical colleges on raised Line, and one statistic that's really remarkable is there's a 17% increase in applications to medical school so far this year, so we'll see if that trend continues as people want to meet the moment and maybe also go into professions that, as you've said, there'll be demand for for years to come. My last question for you is, is there anything else you want to be able to talk about to share with our audience while we have you on Raise the Line?
0: Yeah, one of the things, um, uh, you know, people ask, I, I usually like to give the whole empathy definition in the training on that. But I think the other one that's very, very important is the difference between dehumanization and burnout. So, if you are a burned out profession, whether you're in healthcare or not healthcare, what that really means is you've lost your zest. You, you don't feel like you're having any impact, that what you do doesn't matter anymore. And it's almost a clinical diagnosis. It's not depression, but it's kind of like depression. And so, that has a variety of interventions that are necessary for it. That's much different than dehumanization. So, if I'm a physical therapist, I've had a very busy day and I'm on my 11th patient without any break. At some point, I am going to what the call center research calls calcification. I'm going to calcify, meaning I'm going to get a little bit tired, and I'm going to take a human being that's normally a three-dimensional character, and I'm going to make them a two-dimensional character. That's a very natural human behavior to happen. And when you calcify, you're essentially dehumanizing. But the antidotes to dehumanization is empathy and mindfulness breaks and doing whatever it is that Hacks you back into normalcy. For some, it's taking a five-minute break. For some, it's having a cup of coffee. For some, it's meditating. Whatever your thing is, listening to music, do whatever it takes to rehumanize you in the moment. Uh, but that doesn't mean you're burned out. That means you're normal. Burnout, on the other hand, the real antidote is rediscovering your profession as your calling. It's re-engaging the whole definition behind empathy and why you were called there to begin with. So, looking at the thank you notes. Understanding, you know, look at your old application for medical school, why you wanted to become a doctor. Those are the ways you can hack your way out of burnout. But burnout is much more of a diagnosis where dehumanization is much more of a symptom that can be dealt with real time.
1: Thanks for explaining that. That's the first time I heard that distinction. So, Dr. Benz, I mean, I'd feel like I make a 30-minute podcast with you a couple hours. So I really appreciate (laughs) you taking the time to be with us today.
0: Well, I I Thoroughly enjoy it. Love the work that you're all doing, and I know you'll have continued success with it.
1: Appreciate it, and likewise. And with that, I'm Shivaglani. Thank you to our audience for checking out today's show. And remember to do your part to flatten the curve and raise the line, since we're all in this together.
0: For more information on how you can help raise the line and flatten the curve, go to osmosis.org slash COVID-19. If you like this podcast, please share it on your social channels. You can also subscribe to the series and check out all of our podcasts at osmosis.org/slash podcast.